Well, good morning, friends. Uh, for those who are new with us this morning, a, a special welcome to you. My name is Marwan, and I serve as one of the pastors here at City Bible Church. And for the rest of you, you keep coming back. Uh, I, I keep thinking I'm going to lose some of you after especially the last two sermons, right? Sin and the wrath of God and salvation through judgment, and, and yet you're still here. Now, of course, I'm, I'm only joking. I, I hope what's happening is that you are finding that your soul is refreshed by the truth of God's Word. Even when the subject matter is heavy or challenging, that you're finding there is life in the Word of God. Now, we are going through the book of Zephaniah, and as a brief summary, I can remind us that there is a cycle that is repeated, right? There's a declaration of warning, and then of judgment, and then a restoration. That's the general structure of the minor prophets. And in the last two weeks, we've considered that God's judgment is purposeful, which is so good for us to remember. It's good for us to see that there is purpose in suffering and that God uses our suffering. And in Zephaniah, we see that through judgment, God was purifying his people. Look with me to Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 9. For I will then restore pure speech to the peoples, so that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with a single purpose. And look with me to the passage for today. It's in your bulletin, or you can follow along on the screen. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. And this will serve as a springboard into a larger biblical theme. If you weren't with us, we're spending five weeks in the book of Zephaniah. The first one was an overview. We, can, uh, we consider the entire book, the main themes, the purpose, what was happening. And in the remaining weeks, we are zooming in to these important themes, and this will serve as one for us today. Zephaniah 3, verses 18 through 20. I will gather those who have been driven from the appointed festivals. They will be a tribute from you and reproach on her. Yes, at that time I will deal with all who oppress you. I will save the lame and gather the outcasts. I will make those who are disgraced throughout the earth receive praise and fame. At that time, I will bring you back. Yes, at that time, I will gather you. I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. The Lord has spoken. Now, this is a, a really beautiful imagery of restoration, a gathering and bringing back of God's people. And again, the theme of returning home is found throughout the prophets both the minor and the major. Imagery that those who are disgraced will no longer be put to shame. The outcasts are brought near. But there are questions to ask. Who are these promises for? Now the context tells us for the people of God, but we still ask, who are the people of God? How do we interpret these things in light of near fulfillment and far fulfillment of prophecy? Now, that's what's ahead of us for today. And as you follow along, I want you to keep our main point in your mind. If you're taking notes, this is where you write this down. All the promises of God are found in Jesus. That's our main point this morning. I'll say it again. 
All the promises of God are found in Jesus. Now, let me say one more thing as an introduction. Uh, This is a huge subject and theme that we're looking at today. One that we will barely scratch the surface of. But I think it's, it's really better said that it's not that we'll barely address it, but that we will most deeply address it. We can't say everything about this topic, but we, this morning, by the grace of God, will get to the heart of this theme, this topic. It's a lot to cover, and I'll be preaching a bit longer than I normally would. I've already discussed this with the children's workers. Uh, They're happy to stay till 2, and so we're very thankful for their service, and we can be praying for them. Uh, But but the reason this is going to take a bit more time than normal and that I'm dedicating time for it as a church is because I know the questions that you're asking. And I know that these issues aren't addressed much in the life of the church. And so I hope that you will be engaged and that it won't feel too long. Now remember, my offer is always available that we can get together for coffee and discuss anything that is spoken about in the sermon. Uh, Now, for this topic, we might need to get a group together and add knefe to that menu to make it for a longer discussion, but that is available. Will you pray with me? Jesus, help us to see you today. Give us ears to hear your voice, minds to understand, and hearts to receive your words of life. Amen. Now, let me tell you very simply uh, what the common understanding of these prophetic passages are. And this position is often connected to a theological framework called dispensationalism. It's generally understood, for those who hold on to that framework, that all the prophecies in the Bible must be fulfilled before the second coming of Christ. And the nation of Israel, returning to their ancient homeland, was a final and outstanding prophecy. Now, if you look into the history and the politics surrounding the creation of the state of Israel, and I'm talking about uh, the Balfour Agreement, I'm talking about the preaching uh, and and teachings of John Darby, the Schofield Bible, and these kinds of things, the efforts were motivated by and deeply tied to this interpretation of Scripture. That's why there was such rejoicing in the Western Christian world, primarily in America, when Israel was declared a nation in 1948. And then again in 1967 when Jerusalem was won and overtaken by the Jews. Now it should be said that this theological position is is no more than 150 years old. This is not the historic Christian position or interpretation of the Bible. In the last 120 days, there have been over 27,000 people killed in Gaza. Just a few hours' drive from here. A third or so of those deaths are children. 66,000 wounded. 17,000 children have lost their families or have been separated from them. Now you might be thinking, but pastor, people die. Every day, people Die. Wars are horrible, and death is horrible. Why are you bringing up this situation during a sermon? 
Now, the difference here is that these deaths and this fighting are tied in some way to Christ and to his church. The deaths in Gaza are allowed and supported by many Christians because they believe these things must happen. They read passages like the one that we read in Zephaniah chapter 2, which says, Gaza will be abandoned and are compelled to support these horrors. Now, some are hesitant about these events, but still they have space for these things to happen because they say, this is Israel. They are the people of God. We are called to bless them and to stand with them. Now, the support of this movement is known as Zionism. The term Zionism was coined by Nathan Birnbaum in 1890, and here's the definition. It's defined as the national movement for the return of the Jewish people to their homeland and the resumption of Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel. And Christians who support this movement are known as Christian Zionists. My goodness, all the words we're not supposed to say here in Lebanon are coming out of my mouth at one time and in one place. Don't tell anyone. I was speaking with Pastor Anwar, who's away this morning, and told him about the title of today's sermon. And he cautioned me that we might not want to title it that way on our website. I told him, brother, don't worry. We will still title it Zion and the Israel of God. And underneath it, it'll say, Preacher Anwar Sawaya. <laughs> that protects me to some degree. Now, in my studies and my interests of these issues, I've learned that Elizabeth Elliot spoke much about these things. Listen to what she says about Zionism, and keep in mind that she wrote these words 50 years ago. It is a very confused line of thought that construes Zionism as theologically based, failing to recognize it as a political and economic movement, or that equates the modern state of Israel with the Israel of God. We have many questions to ask in order to try to understand these things. Was the formation of a national state for the Jews in 1948 a fulfillment of prophecy? Are the Jews God's people? Who are the people of God? Now, one concern for Christians who hold on to a return and a restoration of a physical and national Israel is this. They say, well, if, if God doesn't keep his promises to the Jews, how can we believe that he will keep his promises to us? Now, for those who disagree that the modern state of Israel is the Israel of God, is that what we believe? Do we believe that God has broken his word? Of course not. Remember our main point. All the promises of God are found in Jesus. And that's what I hope that we can see together this morning and afternoon. This isn't about proving our position is right or that Zionism is wrong and unbiblical. Now, yes, those would be added bonuses. But what, what I hope that you'll see is that, one, what we believe about God directly affects how we live. 
And two, that you will see the beauty of Jesus as the true and the deep and the final fulfillment of all the promises of God. Now, to understand what, more clearly what the Bible says about these things, we'll consider four categories together. Prophecy, people, land, and Christ. So if you're taking notes, that's going to be our outline for our time together. Prophecy, people, land, and Christ. And they're, they're each going to, to some degree, stand on their own, but they will find their connection together in that last point of Christ. Prophecy. Remember, we've considered together that Hebrew prophecy has both a near and a far element. For example, in Zephaniah, the promise of destruction and God's holy judgment against his people was fulfilled within a few decades. The, the near fulfillment of this prophecy took place when Babylon came through. They destroyed the land and the temple, and the people of God were taken into exile. The far fulfillment, as we've already considered, of this prophecy speaks of a final judgment. All the people of the world will be judged by God. And those who are in Christ are free from wrath. They're free from God's holy action against sin because Christ took God's wrath for us. But everyone else still stands condemned in the eyes of God. Now, we also read in Zephaniah, we just saw it here in, in chapter 3, about a return, and of speaking of a remnant. Well, did that happen? Yes. After the Babylonians came, the Persian Empire. You can read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther. There was a return of God's people. They, they were still ruled by different empires, but they were back in the Promised Land. Now, at that time, the temple was rebuilt. It was called Zerubbabel's Temple, but later, and this is now coming into the, the time of Christ, it became known as Herod's Temple because he was the one who renovated it and enlarged it. What's well, the far fulfillment of this? Well, the final fulfillment is of a new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, which is also called Zion. Now, is there anything between these two fulfillments? Well, as we look to the other points about who the people of God are and what the New Testament says about the land, it'll help us answer this question or these questions. But first, let's talk about prophecy a bit more. Yes, there is a near element and a far element when it comes to prophecy. But the New Testament also speaks uh, of things in the Old Testament as shadows of things to come. Right? That the things that are coming are greater than the things that were. An example that we can look at is in the book of Hebrews, where the author speaks about the role of sacrifice and the role of the temple in the Old Testament. Look with me to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 to 24. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. The heavenly sanctuary is greater than the tabernacle of old, right? John Stott says it this way, 
The fulfillment of biblical prophecy has always transcended the categories in, it, in which it was originally given. Or the, the things to come are greater than what was originally seen. We can think of eternal things over temporary things, spiritual things above physical. The last thing to say about prophecy is that it needs to be interpreted in light of the gospel. Jesus told us so himself. On the day that Jesus was raised from the dead, Jesus ran into a couple of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they were discussing all the things that took place, and we can pick it up from there. Luke 24, 17 through 21, you can follow along on the screen. Then he asked them, this is Jesus speaking, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? What things? He asked them. So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. The redemption of Israel. We'll see in a bit that this was always what they understood that the Messiah would do. Let's keep reading verses 25 through 27. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory. Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. How incredible would that have been to be a part of that Bible study? Jesus showed them all the things that they were waiting for in the Old Testament and how it spoke about him. Second, let's talk about people. Who are the people of God? Does God have one people or two people? Now, we considered this before. It's wrong for us to think that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. But it's also wrong for us to think that the people of God in the Old Testament are different than the people of God in the New Testament. There's nothing in the New Testament that would support the view that ethnic Israel is one people and the church is another. Now, of course, as we look at the New Covenant, we understand that the New Covenant develops and deepens and, and explains and becomes more full, right? It develops the people of God into a deeper reality. But there have always been one people of God, those who belong to Him by faith, not by blood or by race, not by keeping the law or by any works that they did. There's one family of faith, one bride of Christ. Let's consider several passages from the New Testament. We're going to go through a bunch. I'm going to paraphrase a few of them just for the sake of time. In Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus was told that his mother and his brothers were waiting outside to speak to him, he responds and says, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? 
Stretching out his hand toward the disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, Paul tells us that before the foundation of the world, God chose a people for himself in Jesus. He adopted us into his family through Jesus. And in Romans 9, uh, Romans 9, Paul tells us that not all of Israel is Israel. Not all the children of Abraham are his descendants. Now on the one hand, as we look at the immediate context, this is speaking about the story and the situation between uh, Ishmael and Isaac. But listen and notice how Paul fills out the teaching in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, verses 7 through 9. You know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham, who had faith. In the story of, of God's redemption of his people, these were huge and new realities in, in the life of the early church. And so there was fighting and disputes, and we can read about them throughout much of, of Paul's writings, right? They're, primarily, this fighting was between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so Paul responds in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. And last verse, as we consider together uh, kind of a, a quick survey of who the people of God are, Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. In Christ there is... <clears throat> Not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Friends, the New Testament is abundantly clear that there are only two categories of people, those who are in Christ and those who are not. And so we can say with full confidence that the true Israel are those who have put their faith in Jesus. And friends, that doesn't describe the people of the country south of us. But we do good to ask, what about ethnic Israel? Is God completely done with them? To answer this, uh, we can maybe go to what's called the hardest verse to interpret in the Bible. Romans chapter 11, verse 26. It's there that Paul writes, all Israel will be saved. What does that mean? Well, the immediate context is that Paul is talking about his family according to the flesh, right? He's speaking now of his ethnic family, brothers and sisters. And he wishes that they didn't reject Christ, but he knows it's for a purpose. The purpose was that through their blindness and through their rejection of Jesus, the Gentiles, 
would be brought into the family of faith. And then he goes on to say right before this, this verse in verse 26, he goes on to say that it would be easier for the Jews to be brought back into the family of faith than it was to bring in the Gentiles. Right? He talks about an image of, a, of an olive tree where a branch is broken off and then a wild branch is brought in and grafted in. So he's saying how much easier would it be to bring the, the branch that was originally part, originally part of it. And he says that one day they will be brought in. There are many interpretations of this passage. Now, I personally believe that in the providence of God, ethnic Israel still has a place in the story of redemption. The details of that are unclear. And we'll see in a moment that the physical land has nothing to do with it. But here is what's important. The redemption of all things isn't in them, nor dependent on them. Their redemption and salvation, just like anyone else, is found in Christ alone for all who call upon his name. And that's why we're able to sing that new song today, right? We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things, we will say together. We will feast and weep no more. Brothers and sisters, there is a day coming that all who are found in Christ are eagerly awaiting. Uh, parenting is fun, has its highs and its many lows, or sorry, many highs and lows is what I meant to say. Um, uh, and, and Marcy and I have been having sweet conversations with our son, Shia. He's six years old. And any person he learns about uh, in books or wherever, whether it's a historical figure or like Pele, you know, sports figures, uh, he'll often ask, did they love Jesus? Then he'll ask, are they in heaven? And we uh, recently were reading and learning about Rembrandt. Uh, and Shia asked, if God lets Rembrandt paint the sunsets sometimes. Or uh, if he'll meet Johann Sebastian Bach, and maybe he would teach Shia how to play the piano. It's sweet, but this is the reality that we look forward to. Because in heaven, we will be with God and with the people of God. One people together. We need to remind each other to fix our eyes on that day. Number three, the land. What about the land? I don't know, let's keep going. No, we have to talk about the land, right? This is maybe the biggest issue when it comes to these prophecies and to their fulfillments. Now, to understand this point, we need to keep in mind what we've considered about prophecy and about the people of God in order to see how this starts coming together. You see, the Jews of first century Palestine had the same questions and the same misunderstandings of the Old Testament prophecies. They believed that the promised Messiah would be a political figure, that the chosen one of God would rescue them from Roman rule and from oppression. Let's take a moment and think of ourselves. Notice with me how often we look for and settle for the shallow and the temporary. But God wants so much more for us. Jesus came, as the prophecies foretold, to set the captives free, 
but not from the earthly empire of Rome, from the eternal kingdom of death. To set us free from the bondage of sin, not Caesar. God's ways are so much greater than our own, but we struggle to see it. That's common for all of us. Now, the connection here is that freedom included and involved having a homeland. The the Jews expected a political restoration of the kingdom of Israel, but Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God. There's so many recorded conversations uh, with Jesus, and many of them had to do with the restoration of Israel. We, We heard about it in Luke 24, right, with the Emmaus disciples. They asked, we we hope that he would be the one to do this thing, to restore the kingdom to Israel. Uh, We we can think about it, many passages. Uh, In Acts chapter 1, right before Jesus ascended into heaven, the disciples asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? How did he respond? With the Great Commission. He responds to the calls for a restored Israel with the spread of the church. Friends, Christ's kingdom isn't a small piece of land for one nation, but extends over all the earth, comprised of every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people. You see, as we explore and dig into the New Testament, Jesus Paul and every New Testament author were silent about the land in connection to Israel. And we need to listen to their silence. It speaks clearly to us. In Romans 9.4, as, as Paul recounts the covenant promises to Israel, there's no mention of the land. We can think of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, where Jesus taught, Blessed are the humble for they will inherit the earth. Now, it's interesting if we had more time to consider that the word earth is the same word for land. Specifically, as as Jesus is quoting Psalm 37, but also throughout the Old Testament. The land, if it belongs to anyone, belongs to the meek and to the humble. We can go on and on and on. But I think we'd be most helped to think about what the land was meant to be. What it represented, what God was promising to his people. Again, remember that the fulfillment of the promises is greater than what was first seen and understood. And so to consider, we can think of the land was a promised place of rest, of worship, and of freedom. Let's think together on those categories. The land was a promised place of rest, worship, and freedom. First, the land was a place of rest. In Exodus 33, God tells Moses, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. In Leviticus 26, the land is described as a place of peace, where the people can lie down without being frightened. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 13, we read, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest 
and will give you this land. You see the connection with land and rest. Now, this verse directly, which is always nice, is directly interpreted and explained for us in Hebrews. So we don't have to guess what it might mean or what it could mean. And one theologian says it this way, the divine rest, which originally referred to entrance into the promised land, is now understood as a reference to a greater heavenly reality. Just like we saw that the heavenly sanctuary is greater than the temple, well, the heavenly rest is greater than the land. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There is a final rest for the people of God, and it's not in a physical piece of land. The land was a place of worship. Previously, worship was connected to the land because the temple was based in Jerusalem. But, but this changed after Jesus came. Right? And, and if, it's, it's, it's as if, if we look at history, that the point is underlined and highlighted when the temple was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. In John 4, we, re- we read a beautiful conversation that Jesus had with a Samaritan woman at the well. She points out that her ancestors worshipped on, on that mountain and the Jews worship in Jerusalem on that mountain. And here's how Jesus responds. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The land was a place of freedom. God's people, for most of their history, have lived in captivity. And so to enter into the promised land was a promise of freedom. Freedom to live with God and His people. Freedom to worship. Freedom from slavery and from oppression. And I wonder if you have begun to see how Jesus connects to all of this. I wonder if the main point today, all the promises of God are found in Christ, I wonder if that's begun to burn in your hearts this morning. Prophecies, people, land, and now let's consider together Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. The covenants weren't abolished. The the law wasn't abolished. They were fulfilled in Jesus. Friends, Jesus is the reality behind all of God's earthbound promises. It's in Him that we find rest. Remember His words of invitation. Come to me, all 
of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He is our place of worship. For Jesus is the meeting place between God and humanity. And He is our freedom. Jesus alone can give us true freedom. In John chapter 8, Jesus had a condemning conversation with the religious leaders of the time. They were trying to claim some sort of special place because they were descendants of Abraham. Now, not only did Jesus say that the true children of Abraham are those who love him and who have faith in him, but he also declared to them, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Brothers and sisters, true freedom isn't found in a place. It's found in a person. Now, in speaking about the law and the promises of life and inheritance, Paul interprets a foundational text in the Old Testament. To the Galatians, he explains the Abrahamic covenant, the promises made to the, their father in the faith. And listen to what he says as we come to a close. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, and then 27 and 29. Paul writes, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. Verse 27, For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Friends, do you see with me that it's all about Jesus? It's not about a land or a people it's always been about Jesus. And it needs to be said that if your understanding of Christianity and your reading of Scripture, if, if it prioritizes anything above Jesus, well, friend, you're, you're looking at it all wrong. It doesn't matter if you're ethnically Jewish or ethnically Phoenician. If you're from Syria Sudan or from the States. It doesn't matter what your family name is or what it says on your ID card, your family documents. What matters is if you believe in Jesus. And if you do, we are called to make him known, to pray for his kingdom to come, to make disciples in his name. And if you don't believe in Jesus, dear friend, there is nothing happening in your life that is more important than that. 
Believe his words. Believe the life he lived. Believe that he died on the cross in your place and was raised from the grave on the third day. And the Bible declares with clarity and authority that if you put your trust in him, he will never put you to shame. If you believe that he is alive, you will have everlasting life. And he, because he's faithful, he will bring you home to heaven. Put your faith in Jesus and find rest and freedom for your soul. Amen. Mm-hmm.